0: We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations.
1: I'm back. He really is. So today, uh, and later, but, la- do you explain where I'm back from? Okay.
2: He was just about to.
1: Yes. Oh, okay. I'm going to let Gary should, cut from I'm go- back.
2: No, he that he's probably would leave that in there because it right. shows personality. No, I
1: think I'm back is fine.
2: Josh is so thrown off by, by joking.
3: <laughs> what are be, we going to do with him? Just have to be Mr. Roboto. <laughs> Hello, I am here. Mr. Roboto. I am, I am present here for the ERLC podcast. <laughs> you realize
1: you're just giving Gary material to work with <laughs> at this point.
2: <laughs> Which we're thankful for. <laughs>
1: We're excited about a brand new project, and it's called The Church and the Racial Divide. So Trillia, maybe share a little bit of
0: why, why we're excited about it.
4: Yeah, well, we're excited about it because this is
3: about the church and it is about the unity of the church, is about what God says in His Word. It's actually a study. So churches can get together with small groups of people and study God's Word together about this topic. So what other way to not only equip and disciple, but encourage each other to learn more about what God says about racial reconciliation, harmony, unity, and this beautiful picture that we're going to see one day every tribe, tongue, and nation worshiping together.
4: Yeah, it's it's
1: Bible teaching, right? I mean, each session takes a passage of Scripture and is taught how it applies to race. You know, the Bible talks quite a bit about race. And what I think is helpful is that this this is okay. People in their local churches opening the scriptures, saying, what does the Bible say about this?
3: This is about God's word and how we can live and grow together as a people uh, made in his image who have been united through Christ and who will be living and worshiping together forever. If your church is
1: interested in this, uh, you can go to lifeway.com slash the church and the racial divide. You can download it as a video download. You can purchase the kit that has DVDs. There's all kinds of resources for you and your church, so we want to encourage you to get that. Hello, and welcome back to this week's episode of the ERLC podcast, where each week we're talking about our work here at the ERLC and focusing on what Christians need to know about what's going on in the world. I'm Josh Wester, and with me in the studio today are my co host Lindsay Nicolay.
2: Hello, everybody.
1: And it's good to have Brent back uh, from his trip to Northern Ireland. You'll be hearing more about that maybe later in the show today and in weeks to come. And later in the show, we'll be talking to a special guest, Ashlyn Portero from City Church in Tallahassee, Florida. But before we get to that, let's go ahead and talk about the week. Lindsay, what's the year else you've been talking about this week?
2: Okay, we've been talking about a few things this week. So we reran a story that was in the Southern Baptist Texan written by Erin Roach, and she shared an incredible story about Josiah Presley. Josiah... Uh, His mom in South Korea, when she was about two months pregnant, went in to have an abortion and she was sent home. And she quickly realized that the abortion did not work. And so Josiah was born, and he actually has a deformed arm now that they believe was caused by the abortion attempt. But he was later adopted and lives in the United States. And it's a powerful story of redemption. It was actually uh, an ad made by this organization called Faces of Choice that was going to run during the Super Bowl, but Fox Sports chose not to
3: run it. And so why did they choose not to run this?
2: So we don't really know why, but they chose to run a hummus commercial that actually was featuring some drag queens instead of a pro-life message. So we can assume that maybe it had to do with the pro-life message. But as we were talking earlier, Brent, you pointed out, the good news is it seems like it's gone semi-viral. And so we just know that the Lord will use this and Josiah's powerful story to move the hearts of the people that come across it on social media. Yeah, what
1: an incredible story. I mean, of a person who is alive today because of a failed abortion and it's just further evidence uh, as we are talking about our pro-life message that life matters. And so this is just a powerful example of that. Yeah, absolutely. I'm
3: obviously, I'm thankful that uh, thousands, if not millions of people have seen it online. It's just a shame that what an opportunity to put it in front of the biggest audience each year on television. So Hopefully, that message just continues to spread.
2: Absolutely. And that's just how the the Lord works. He works in upside-down ways that we can't comprehend sometimes. So that story is incredible. I'd encourage you to go check that out. We also ran a piece by a public health professor uh, about caring for addictive populations, the Christians' call specifically to care for addictive populations, and how we should be extending grace and mercy in the name of Jesus Uh, you know, my family has had addiction and uh, we've had to deal with that. And I thought I love black and white and things to fit into a certain mold and quickly realized uh, that caring for people with addictions uh, is not something that's black and white, that there's one size fits all, that it takes a lot of patience and a lot of the grace of Christ, a lot of truth speaking, a lot of falling down and getting back up again. So we thought that this article would be really helpful because there's probably there's a likelihood that all of our lives are touched somehow by addiction and someone that that battles it.
1: Yeah, I've done two funerals already for close family members whose whose lives were ended tragically early uh, be- because of addictions, because of substance abuse, and so uh, this is something that really resonated with me.
2: Absolutely. So it, yeah, it's so hard. So we just, again, we just want to offer resources that would educate and equip the church and Christians to to deal with some of these issues. And then uh, we had an article by Casey Huff. We joke that he is basically running the ERLC now because I think we've talked about him. before. He just but writes everything. He writes everything as well as pastors. And- He's
3: very prodigious.
2: Yes, he he is a prolific writer.
3: Prolific writer.
2: So it's titled, Are We Free to Disagree? Biblical Sexual Ethics, Religious Liberty, and Title IX at Fuller Theological Seminary. And it's about uh, a a second student who has joined a lawsuit against Fuller claiming sex discrimination, that they are violating Title IX prohibitions on sex discrimination. So Casey writes about the important religious liberty implications that we see arising in this area in a variety of ways and in a variety of states.
1: Yeah, and so Especially in California, this is an issue that has been coming up uh, time and again over the last several years. It's something that we at the URLC have been paying a lot of attention to, and this fight over religious liberty, and especially as it relates to sexual minorities, and the balancing act that is going on between protecting the uh, the rights and civil liberties of people who are in the LGBT population versus the, a fundamental thing in, in American society which is religious liberty and so this this fight is literally playing itself out right now and Casey did a good job highlighting uh, the specifics of, of this case but this is something that Christians have to uh, be paying attention to as we move forward
3: right and it, it just it still continues to surprise me that people act shocked that Christian institutions are going to hold to a Christian ethical, Framework. Uh, I mean, th- this should actually not shock people. That's exactly right. But uh, but apparently. Uh, this, is, this is the new battleground for religious liberty.
1: And, that, and that's what we do here. I mean, one of the things in trying to highlight our work at the RLC is that our work is uh, so much of it geared toward protecting and defending religious liberty for the right for Christians to uh, believe and act uh, in accordance with their faith and for the rights of all people in the United States to, to enjoy their First Amendment protections to do the very same thing. And so uh, this is a great example of that. We would encourage you to go and check it out. But that also kind of brings us toward our culture section for the week. So Brent, why don't you tell us what's going on in culture? What are you looking at right now?
3: Yeah, so uh, I was listening to uh, a reporter's roundtable earlier this week, and they referred to this week as news Mageddon. And honestly, when you look across the landscape of things that are going on in culture— that seems about right because this has been a whirlwind week, and it's still not over—not even close.
2: Yep. Was it mainly a politics news maggeden news maggeden news maggeden news <laughs> news
3: uh, There was quite a bit of it centered around politics, but let's just start in the international sphere. So, coronavirus uh, continues. March forward. So, the the latest reports are that mainland China's infection rate rose sharply again, with just today an additional 3,700 cases that were announced. 73 new deaths have been reported. So, the total cases have now topped 28,000 confirmed cases. Uh, and they are classifying 3800 of them as critical so there's been about 460 lives lost uh within china and then we had a death of an individual in the philippines so this is uh this is certainly advancing at an alarming rate and actually just off the coast of japan they have quarantined uh a ship there uh because the liner right yeah because exactly because they have uh determined that there are some infections aboard the ship so uh, this thing is going in a number of different directions. I think last week y'all touched on the fact that the World Health Organization uh, had announced that this uh, can become an
1: epidemic. So it, it's uh, certainly something that all Americans should be keeping their eyes on. Why, Brent, we've had a lot of conversation about this. Like, why is this special in terms of coronavirus? Obviously, we're devastated to, to hear of just the, the loss of life. But why is this uh, different or being treated differently than, you know, the common flu, which also kills people? Thousands of people every year,
3: right? So, I mean, I do think when you just look at it based on those terms, that the flu is is still a far more serious uh, item to contend with. But I think this, uh, it's known unknowns. Uh, There's a lot that we just don't know about this. How it is communicated between individuals, where it even came from, we're still trying to determine that. And at this moment, there are no uh, medicines uh, where this thing will respond to. So it's uh, it's certainly something that uh, folks are concerned about. Next on the International Stage Show, I was over, as you mentioned, I was in the United Kingdom. I was there when Brexit
1: happened. It happened.
3: And the British Isles did not, uh, contrary to what a lot of folks thought, it, the British Isles did not get swallowed up by the Irish Sea. Uh, the culture is still there uh, and happening. But that said... Uh, We laugh about it, but this is an important moment because the United Kingdom is formally exiting uh, the European Union, and uh, there's a lot that goes into that. And they have to hammer all this out, what the particulars look like, and finalize it over the next 11 months. And if they don't, then it will be what's called a hard Brexit, which most uh, folks who are watching
1: this uh, think would not be uh, a very good situation. Right. Right. And so it's something we've been watching develop for months and months. And so the fact that it is finally here, a lot of people were very skeptical. They didn't know if they were going to have maybe another referendum uh, to try to see, should we even continue to pursue Brexit? But Boris Johnson, uh, he he did the thing that got him into office. He got Brexit done.
3: That's right. So it's uh, it's, uh, fascinating for folks that are paying attention to uh, international politics and obviously, honestly, to be there on the ground in Northern Ireland. Uh, which is a part of the United Kingdom, as it was coming. it It was very fascinating to have conversations with locals there who honestly are pretty split on the issue itself.
2: Well, what are some of the ramifications? Is it economic? How will the United Kingdom, what will their economy look like?
3: Yeah, a lot of issues centering on trade and access to the common European marketplace, uh, and they want to ideally hammer out a trade relationship with the United States uh, very quickly. So there's a lot going on in British politics, but— that pales in comparison to what is going on here. So we actually began the week with the Super Bowl. That's right.
1: That's uh, right. A
3: huge cultural moment
1: uh, in American life. and um, Which was actually a great game. You know, yeah. I've seen a lot of Super Bowls mm-hmm. in my life. Many times you're disappointed. You're expecting something awesome to happen. And you usually get good commercials and hopefully good food. But this was actually a great game. It was a lot of fun to watch. That's right. Mm-hmm. And
3: uh, the Kansas City Chiefs prevailed over the San Francisco 49ers. A lot of folks uh, were happy about that. Some of them even work for us here at the RLC. Uh, But unfortunately, the game was overshadowed by, shall we say, a unique halftime show. Lindsay, what did you call it earlier? A very unique
2: halftime show, which I didn't actually watch. It came... Uh, the next day, I came to work and watched some of the clips because everyone was talking about it. But I saw someone call it the Super Pole halftime wow. show, yeah. which probably accurately describes it. it I haven't was, watched it,
1: but that sounds like what I've been hearing. Yeah. yeah,
2: it was a train wreck, and it's not something I would let my children watch. Not something I would recommend other people to watch. But after watching it, I— I wrote on Slack, our little work chat, that I needed to cleanse my eyes and ears. So I went back and watched Whitney Houston's National Anthem rendition, which is the best of Probably all the time, best ever. in my opinion. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So after I watched that and listened to it, I felt better right. about life. You
3: know, well, we we got together as a as a church small group uh, and and watched the entire game. And I got to tell you, there was quite a bit of of wincing going on, children being ushered out of the room. Our Our children definitely did not watch it. Uh, so, yeah, it's unfortunate that the halftime performance is somewhat overshadowing what you said was a good game. On the political front, though, this week has just been uh, an incredible week. For, historic week. Really. Uh, yeah. yeah, a historic week. So it began, though, on Monday with the Iowa caucuses. Which, which we've talked about for weeks. I've so, yeah, been
1: anticipating a, this, all the buildup. People have been campaigning in Iowa since 2017. And then what happened, Brent? It's a cherished,
3: time-honored tradition that became the Iowa debacles. Uh, There's really no other way to describe it. So there was a malfunctioning app that was deployed by the state Democratic Party to capture all the votes and it failed miserably. And then the backup failed. Because when you have 1,700 precincts, of course, you would only have 12 people manning
1: phone lines that are serving as your primary backup. Which I did some quick math on that, by the way. And so they had 12 people manning these phone lines. And if, you know, if they spent an average of three minutes on the phone with every precinct, which is unlikely, and made the calls back to back, they could have tabulated the results in about nine hours.
3: Yep. It's it's pretty amazing. It's just a, it was honestly just a catastrophe. So a- as we are talking, we still do not have 100 percent Of the precincts reporting uh, for Iowa. But it does look pretty clear that former South Bend, Indiana Mayor Pete Buttigieg and current Senator from Vermont Bernie Sanders are going to be the top two finishers. They will get awarded the most delegates. But that's actually less important when it comes to Iowa. What's more important is about establishing momentum for your campaigns for the future contests that lie ahead. So Uh, Needless to say, that was fascinating to watch, if not actually horrifying, because I stayed up till 1230 that night waiting for results, being the political nerd that I am.
2: Yeah. Oh, my. Well, it's still—I asked you what a caucus was last week, Josh, and it just— it just made me wonder, really, what's the purpose? Yeah, I know there's a long tradition of it. It just seemed like a giant pep rally,
3: yeah, so caucus is a is a apparently an old Indian word that just means neighborhood meeting, and that's what that's what is so great about it is folks from their neighborhoods they come around and they decide which candidate they're going to pledge their support to, and uh the Iowans did that, they did their due diligence, they met with the candidates, they heard from them. Uh, it's unfortunate that the results just did not match their enthusiasm. That's exactly right. And then the very next night, we had the State of the Union, the annual address provided by the President of the United States to uh, let his fellow Americans know what the state of our union is. And, you know, it always begins with what I would describe as some collegiality, but uh, it was very apparent that the divisions that we are seeing across our culture also made it into the House chamber that night. There were some silent protests. Uh, There were some things done that had not been done previously. So, yeah, it was lit. Yeah, I mean, the reality
1: is the impeachment just overshadowed the State of the Union address, and that really kind of set down uh, the boundary markers for the room. The Republicans were very enthusiastically uh, cheering and supporting the president, and it was a pretty cool reception, uh, to say the least, from from the Democrats during the State of the Union. Although
2: there were some pretty uh, incredible moments— Uh, The wife who was surprised with her husband coming back early from Those are always
1: powerful, and in that particular moment, it really was—it was just amazing to watch. Those are redeeming moments.
3: Okay, and so then we followed that up on Wednesday with the impeachment vote that took place in the U.S. Senate. And uh, the President Donald Trump was acquitted by the U.S. Senate. So this was a momentous three days— and then on Thursday, we kicked off the day with the National Prayer Breakfast that takes place each year in Washington D.C. And that was followed up by a press conference hosted by President Trump where uh he was basically celebrating his uh, newfound acquittal from the US Senate. So the first 4 days of this week have been um momentous to say the
1: least. And it's not over.
3: And it's it's not over. Exactly. So uh, tomorrow night, uh, the Democrats will debate. There are seven candidates who have made the standards that the Democratic National Committee have put out, and so they will be on the stage, and that will be the the final debate to take place before the New Hampshire primary next week.
1: Yeah. And Brent, how much do these debates matter at this point? Like, what what effect, if any, are they going to have on New Hampshire voters? Is there preparing for the primary next week?
3: Yeah, so, uh, well, let's look at Iowa. So there are a number of polls that suggested a pretty substantial amount of voters were going to those Iowa caucuses, upwards of 20%, with their minds not made up. And so in Iowa, it's a little bit different uh, just because the the voters do have one final opportunity to hear from uh, a representative of each of the respective campaigns before making their final determination. They don't quite have that opportunity in a traditional primary like New Hampshire has. But I do think, again, because New Hampshireites uh, will take uh, this process pretty seriously and their duty uh, to select somebody pretty seriously, uh, they will be watching very intently this final debate that will take place Friday night.
2: Can you give a breakdown real quick of what is a primary and why New Hampshire?
3: Yeah, so a primary is, is probably what most of us are used to. We go to uh, a polling location. Uh, some of us show an ID, we get a ballot, and we go to the actual ballot booth, mark a check by the person's name, either digitally or on a piece of paper, and submit that to the state where it will be uh, tallied up and the results will be announced later that evening. That's ideally how it's supposed to go. In effect, that's actually what was supposed to also happen uh, in Iowa. It just didn't. New Hampshire uh, is different because while the, the primary is a function of the party, the state actually administers uh, the, the actual voting. So that's why most folks are thinking this will not have the hitches that we saw in Iowa where it was purely a party function.
1: So ideally, by the time you get ready to go to sleep on Tuesday night, you will know who, with the results of the New Hampshire primary You'll
3: probably know something. Although, again, this this does look uh, like it's going to be pretty close. The most recent poll that I I saw had uh, Senator Sanders in the lead there. So that's not uh, unexpected because he did win it in 2016. But what the latest poll showed uh, is that uh, Mayor Buttigieg is beginning to close that gap. And so if this ends up pretty close like Iowa was— you could be in for a long night.
2: Are you saying his name correctly? Buddha Judge. Buddha Judge. I've heard Buddha Judge. Do we, is it like app like all tomato, I can tell tomato? you? is
1: on his Twitter bio. It says Boot Edge Edge. So and they have shirts that say okay, Boot Edge well, Edge. So you yeah. know,
2: listeners, don't listen to Brent. It's Buddha Judge. Just checking. Also, Thanks. do you? Have, <laughs> I was trying to throw in some good banter, bro. Yeah, is
3: that is that good banter? Also, is that what you would call good banter? <laughs> we might have different definitions for what good banter is, but you know, it's we banter.
2: haven't even we haven't even laughed this whole time. Okay, that's hold right. On. I don't know why back, you people are so. Back to the Dem debate. Let me ask you a question: Is a primary like New Hampshire and then the caucuses Iowa essentially giving the Democratic candidates an idea of how the campaign is going?
3: Yeah. So they test different uh, facets of your campaign. So the reason that, I mean, I would say that a a caucus is a valuable lesson is it tests the organizing capability of your campaign. Uh, A primary is a little bit more straightforward. Just get the majority of your people out to the polls and have them vote. Uh, A caucus is different because, as we saw in Iowa, they have what's called realignments. If on the first stage your candidate doesn't meet a certain threshold of viability those uh, voters, those caucus goers, are then up for grabs by the other campaigns. So you have to have a multi-pronged strategy of getting people on the first alignment and then trying to grow your share of the vote on the second alignment. Uh, So I think that those are are valuable exercises for these campaigns to be put through because if you have an eye towards the general election in November – you have 50 state campaigns that are going on at once. And uh, these campaigns need to be pretty robust. They need to be pretty nimble in order to compete across the entire country. And so it's
1: I think it's an important exercise that they go through early on. And so – just so we can rehearse this for people, so who are we watching right now in terms of who, who are the Democrats that are even in contention to receive the nomination?
3: So right now, the, the big four that most people are paying attention to uh, at this point are uh, Vice President Joe Biden, former mayor of South Bend, Indiana, Pete Buttigieg, Senator Bernie Sanders, and Senator Elizabeth Warren. However, once the calendar gets to Super Tuesday, then enters the picture of uh, former New York City Mayor Mike Bloomberg, who is spending an astounding amount of his personal money on Super Tuesday states right now. And that's his theory. He's ignoring the first four states and just waiting for those uh, delegate-rich states to get their chance to vote, and he thinks he could be successful that way. It's, it's a route that has not been tried before, and so many people are skeptical of its success, but we shall see. So, Josh, Lindsay, that's This Week in Culture. Why should someone apply for an internship at the ERLC?
1: If you're at all interested in politics or how faith intersects with the public square, the ERLC internship in D.C. is an incredible opportunity that I would highly recommend you uh, consider.
4: It's not just
1: the type of internship that you want to do. Only if you're interested in government can you be in this. But for Christians, this stuff that you know we were learning in this internship can be applicable in a huge variety of areas. And I would recommend anybody who's
0: a Christian who's interested in politics to apply to this because it really is a good way to get practice in certain policy areas and to learn how to be a Christian in a space that's often not friendly to them.
3: Getting to experience people who are fighting the good fight, but also are deeply spiritual and and deeply
0: rooted in their faith is an experience that I will carry forward for a long time. You should apply because you will become a better person and a better professional.
4: I think there is that dualistic spiritual and professional development that, that you're not gonna find really anywhere else.
0: A great learning experience about what it looks like in practice to make a difference and to do it in a way that is gospel minded and method as well.
1: If you're looking for a great internship, especially in D.C. in that atmosphere, you should definitely check out the ERLC.
0: Coming and working and interning for the ERLC builds so many relationships in our areas of interest that have been super helpful in learning what we want to do going forward, but also just learning how to live out your faith in everyday life.
1: So Ashlyn, tell us a little bit about yourself and what you're doing in ministry right now.
0: Yeah, I live in Tallahassee, Florida, um, so I'm in kind of North Florida in the panhandle, and um, I work full-time for my church, city church here. Um, My role is um, an executive director, so I'm one of two, and I uh, basically oversee staff and ministry operations kind of in the day-to-day, and then I work with our our lead pastor, Dean, on just uh, kind of some strategy and big picture things about where the church is headed. So it's a lot of
2: fun. Ashlyn, you have a lot of responsibility in addition to, I'm sure, a ton of relationships that you're forming and discipleship and the things that you enjoy. So in the midst of all of this, what's one thing that God's teaching you in this season of life and ministry?
0: Yeah, that's good. Um, I would say, I mean, so many things. One kind of small, um, I I think, personal thing and, and to your point about like in, in personal ministry and, um, you know, relationships and discipleship and all those things is just kind of realizing in deeper ways, how much, um, my daily Christian life is just a daily turning to God and, and recognizing my need for him, kind of turning my attention to him. Um, I think in church life and, and church work, a lot of our rhythms, at least for us at City Church kind of run in seasons. And so, It's like we're getting into Easter season or, you know, summer or fall semester. That's kind of how we refer to things. And that can, for me, it can, I can easily fall into um, kind of the trap of living my spiritual life in seasons too, you know, I mean, and, and there are seasons to everything, but also remembering that, you know, our, our walk with God is not just doesn't happen in like seasons or semesters, you know, it's like actual life with God is, is taking the daily bread and repenting daily, needing grace daily. So I think I'm just kind of like learning, you know, in, in deeper ways that that is, is a day-to-day communion. And and that's been a, a cool thing for God to help me realize again and again.
3: Ashlyn, that's great. So you are there, you know, you're serving on a staff with some, some great big personalities like Dean and Sarah and Matt Crawford and <laughs> Alex Scott. And so, yeah. You know, but y'all have got a, a pretty large and gifted team. I, I'm curious, what are the folks that that you help to to lead there? W- what are y'all paying attention to right now in culture?
0: Oh man, um, I mean, when I think about our church members and and just people in our lives that we're you know really ministering to and trying to reach, I mean, people are for sure paying attention to the political climate in our country, um, and I and I think as much and scarily sometimes even more just like the broader commentary that (laughs) surrounds all of that. Um, and I mean, that is everything from cable news to Saturday night live (laughs) pop culture to what our social media feeds are giving us. And so, um, you know, I, I think that's something that people are, are paying attention to. And I mean, even to, to talk about kind of popular culture and, you know, just what's in the mainstream. I mean, it's easy for us to kind of get into these sort of like niche, um, you know, kind of realms or spheres or whatever, but in the mainstream, I think a lot of people just genuinely are paying attention to like what pops up on their social media feed. And so, um, something that we're kind of thinking about is, is I think part of our role as church leaders and and really just Christians making disciples is kind of pointing people's attention to more meaningful things. Um, and then also to, to one another, you know, making sure that, um, we're, we're getting down on eye level with people like we're still trying to love real life people and not objects and not, you know, entertainment. So that's, um, that's kind of been an interesting thing to pay attention to. And
2: that's such a good point, especially as we do live in a connected culture, as you're ministering in the local church, teaching people to have community and to minister one another to one another face to face. So totally. in the midst of what you're doing and the big personalities you work with and the great people you work with and that you minister to, it's probably hard to boil it down, but what's one of the most fulfilling things that you do in your work?
0: Oh. Um yeah, I mean there there are a lot of things. I would say at a broad level, there I mean there really is truly nothing more fulfilling than seeing someone who was lost come to know God and and grow in communion with him and belong to the church that, that just never gets old. In my specific sort of day-to-day, I think one of the most fulfilling things to me, um, most fulfilling parts of my job is just kind of seeing who we're growing into as a church, like what our church family is about and the things that we're um, we're counting as important to us and, and focusing on and just kind of knowing that I get to play a small part in helping shape that culture and that trajectory. Um, And that's really humbling and weighty when you think about it. And um, there are people who, you know, carry, I mean, Dean and our elders and others that carry even a greater weight. But when you kind of look around and like see all of the good things that are happening and see how, you know, Jesus really is building his church as he said that he would, it's like, okay, yeah, this, this is worth giving my life to. So it's, it's very fulfilling.
3: And we're, we're thankful, Ashlyn, that you have, uh, given your life to this service. Okay. So for our final question, you've drawn one of my favorite questions to ask. So I I know that, (laughs) that, uh, you read quite a bit. So tell us, tell our audience here, uh, what are your five favorite books, uh, that you've read and ones that you constantly are pointing people towards?
0: That's good. Um, Okay. These might be like five of my favorite books because it's really hard for me to whittle down. (laughs) Um, So I actually just finished reading um, The Deep Things of God by Fred Sanders. Um, So I'm uh, in seminary at um, Talbot School of Theology at Biola University. And um, The Deep Things of God, I mean, it's just totally expanding my view and and understanding the Trinity. And so um, I think Dr. Sanders said something about helping you discover what you already have as Christian, whether you know it or not. Um, and so I'm kind of still processing that book, but I would absolutely recommend it. it. It is really making an impact on me. The Dutch House is a fiction novel by Anne Hatchett. Um, she's actually a, a national resident. And it, it was just a, a great story. I mean, she's a great storyteller, and um, it, it talks a lot about. Kind of complicated family dynamics, and so for me personally, that's something that um, is true for my life. And so it actually, I wasn't expecting it to, but it kind of helped me process some of those relationships. So I'd recommend that one. Every good endeavor by Tim Keller is one of my favorites. These are, I'm realizing, these are all like fairly new books. So I promise, I do read like (laughs) (laughs) um, historical classic works as well. These are just on my mind. Every good endeavor is just the gospel and work, Um, and. and a great framework for thinking through how you view work as a Christian and how you view yourself in work, um, and and a really good reminder of like that God's going to redeem all of the work that we're just desperately trying to do, um, and then um, the Year of Magical Thinking uh, by Joan Didion. Um, that's a, a memoir, um, and she's an essayist. Um, that's just a really kind of sharp, beautiful look into the process and experience of grief. Um, And I like memoirs. That's like one of my favorite genres, but her writing style connects with me. And that's just good for seeing how grief and healing are not linear processes. Um, So that's a favorite. And then um, the last one, another fiction one, honestly, I I love fiction. I read a lot of it um, is uh, Interpreter of Maladies by Jhumpa Lahiri. Um, So that's a collection of stories about um, Bengali immigrants coming from India to the United States and um, deals just a lot with cultural generational class-related themes. And um, for me, that was one of the first books that kind of helped me realize like there are these struggles that people have when they're thrust into a new world, and they're being shaped by multiple cultures. And so um, you know, in a place like Tallahassee that is sort of diverse, but you know, doesn't look like the many other more urban parts of the country, um, that was a really impactful book for me. So, those are five on my list. <laughs> I yeah. just added things
2: to my wish list, Ashlyn.
0: Yeah, that was <laughs> Amazon as you are talking. That was so good. <laughs>
1: that was really great. And, you know, uh, at the URLC here, we are big readers. And so, I'm sure that people will enjoy those recommendations. It's impressive that you just had those five to rattle off. Uh, and so, I would encourage people to check that out. But Ashley, we just want to say thanks. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us today. We really enjoyed uh, the conversation.
0: Awesome. Thank you, guys.
1: One of our favorite things about working together at the URLC are just the conversations that we get to share together each week. And for us, most of the time, that happens when we sit down in the lunchroom at the table to have these conversations. And so each week, we're going to bring you something of what we just can't stop thinking about. So, Lindsay, what are you bringing to the table this week?
2: So earlier this week, I think it was earlier this week, there was lots of talk about whether or not Tom Brady was going to come to the Titans. Oh, yeah,
1: all the speculation.
2: Yes, I think that was before the Super Bowl because the commercial dropped where it, where yes, it, it was. said he was going to stay in. So anyway, but they were talking about him coming to the Titans. Apparently, he and his wife were visiting a school here for their children. Well, then it turns out that it was actually a Nashville couple who was mistaken for the Bradys. The, living with Landon, it's an Instagram, and her husband used to play in the NFL. I think he was inducted into the Hall of Fame. So I don't know if it's because of their looks, in which case I would say how great would you feel about yourself if no you kidding. were I mean, It's mistaken. a problem I live with. But you know. Yeah, if you were mistaken for um, an NFL superstar – and a supermodel or if it was just because of the rumors circulating around the school. But anyway, uh, I think they probably felt
1: pretty good about themselves. I imagine that they did. And so, Brent.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I imagine that they did. Let me go to Brent. I'll go to Brent. You, okay. Why don't you just okay. go okay. to
3: Brent?
1: Heck, I
2: would. Heck, uh, I would. Oh, man. Yeah. I imagine they felt pretty good about themselves, but the Titans won't be getting Tom Brady. But that's okay, because we did pretty good this year. Hopefully, we'll do great next year.
3: I love how you use weed. Did you put on a jersey this year for the Titans?
2: I mean, I live in Nashville, so that makes me an honorary member.
3: Eh,
1: eh, eh. I don't know. I've
2: been that. to a game.
1: Hey, I drive so by I'm billboards all the time that say Titan up. I'm assuming it's talking to me, so tighten up, Brent.
2: Exactly. So, anyway, we're all Titans in Tennessee, Brent. Uh, In Nashville, Tennessee, I guess. Um, Okay, Brent, what have you been talking about?
3: All right. So I pointed this out a couple weeks ago about rising levels of distrust in society. And as we kind of talked about earlier, what we saw in Iowa this week is only going to contribute to that. So I've got a little piece. It was an opinion piece uh, written on NBC News by a gentleman named Lee Drutman. He's a senior fellow at the political reform program at New America. And he talks about how this could not have come at a worse moment, uh, particularly in our political space. So he points out that between the year 2000 and 2012, the share of Americans who said they were confident that the country's vote was being counted fairly plunged from about fifty percent to twenty percent—that's that's less than one in five in Americans. Uh, I mean, that is just—that's not good for uh, a political system like ours that has to have a healthy bit of trust in order to function the way that our our founders envisioned.
1: So this is a this is a problem I'm going to keep highlighting because we we've got we got to figure this out. Yeah, I mean that's one of the reasons that we uh, focus so much on American democracy is because in order for our society to function well, you have to have uh, faith in institutions and specifically in the integrity of the vote. And so, yeah, I mean, it's definitely something that's really important. Absolutely.
2: I would say since I've known y'all, my trust in you has plunged from 50% to 20%. Wow.
1: That's that's (laughs) an indictment, Josh. That is an indictment. I'm afraid it might be well-deserved. So for my resource this week, I've got to tell you, there's probably no redemptive value in this. It's not going to be something that you can use and be helpful, but here's the thing. So I'm not a huge sports guy. I'm from Eastern North Carolina. We do college basketball and very little else in in terms of sports that we watch or pay attention to. And so each year for the Super Bowl, I'm just looking for some of the other highlights, although I did enjoy the game this year. But one of the big highlights for me is just watching the commercials. There's one thing this week that I can't stop thinking about, and it's that car commercial that was set in Boston. And I don't know why, but I've always just had a thing for the Boston accent. You know, the whole pakikai kai on the eye, like that thing. It's just a thing I've always loved. And so when they did this commercial, it was uh, Rachel Dratch from SNL, Chris Evans, you know, Captain America, John Kranzynski, who is Jim from The Office, and also the Amazon show. What is it? Uh, Jack oh, Ryan. Jack Ryan, Ryan. yeah. I, so yeah. I,
3: I think of him more as the guy that was in the 13 hours of Benghazi story. Oh, he yeah. was in Benghazi. It was a
1: great movie. Mm-hmm. And and so anyway, I watching Big this commercial. Poppy. It's Big Poppy. Yes, David Ortiz. So who is Big Poppy? He was
3: the longtime first baseman for the Boston Red
1: Sox. I mean David Ortiz. They called him Big Poppy. Oh. So anyways, you guys are hijacking my my sorry. Yeah. So, anyway, the reason that I love this though. So this commercial set in Boston and the thing it's trying to highlight is that on the new Hyundai Sonata it has what what's called Smart Park. But, you know, they're from Boston. So they say Smart Park. And so <laughs> as I'm watching this commercial they're just talking all the time like, yep. you know, and so anyway, it's just so funny. Can't get it out of my mind, but the thing that sticks with me is Rachel Dratch at the end. She goes, "That's a ghost car." I just can't get past it. That that probably actually was my favorite commercial, and I do like to actually
3: watch the Super Bowl for the commercials too. But what I thought was noteworthy about it is, I don't know if you'll notice, there was a pattern with commercials this year, just kind of having a lot of cameos from different stars, but this one really worked. Oh, they went for it. Uh, And so this is the one that stood out for me the most. And I agree. It was hilarious. And I love the take on the Boston accents.
1: So I don't want to leave you with uh, just something that's totally unhelpful. Although we will link to it. You can watch that commercial if you haven't seen it. Or if you just want to see it again, it'll be there for you.
3: Hey, you know what's helpful? It's helpful to laugh. That's right. And this commercial will make
1: you laugh. But so that we can get you to something helpful, Lindsay's going to tell you right now about our ERLC Resource of the Week.
2: Okay, so this week we're featuring a talk by Mindy Bells from our Evangelicals for Life conference. It's called The Church on the Margins, The Gospel and the World's Most Vulnerable. And this little clip will teach us about how the gospel changes the way we advocate for the most vulnerable people
1: around the world. So we'll get to that clip in just a moment, but we just wanted to take a second and encourage you. If you'd like to stay connected with what's going on at the ERLC, in addition to the podcast, you should subscribe to our newsletter that comes out every Friday, The Weekly. You can go to erlc.com, and if you just scroll down right there at the top, you can sign up to receive The Weekly. It's a a once-a-week email right in your inbox. It'll help you see all the stuff that we're focusing on, working on. It'll give you helpful links uh, to stories that are at erlc.com and links to uh, external things that you should be paying attention to. And so we just wanted to plug that for you. Also, as a reminder, if you've enjoyed the show or found it helpful, we would love for you to help us spread the word. You can share uh, about the podcast on social media. You can also go into your podcast app and leave us a rating or review. Uh, It's always helpful for us to spread the word and have more people be aware of what it is that we're doing. But for Brent and Lindsay and myself, we want to sign off now. We will be back next week with more content.
4: I would argue that God does not make a distinction whether the vulnerable are here or there all are his children. We can and should be drawn to engage in mercy ministries we see modeled by the persecuted church itself. I see them everywhere. The letters from the early reign pastor, Wang Yi, who is now in jail in China, should become part of our Christian canon. They are so amazing. Bishop Otto's church in Aleppo should encourage us as we see how they are feeding and clothing displaced Syrians for nearly a decade now. The Chaldeans and the Assyrians in Iraq have built camps and churches to serve the displaced in northern Iraq. They have raised money to rescue Yazidi and other women who have been held in ISIS captivity. That work continues even now.